Welcome back, me, to STEM Fatale Podcast, your women in science history podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm Wait, rusty, you guys. Just welcomed your, you just welcomed yourself back to the podcast. Yeah, I'm gone. <laughs> hey, Emlyn, welcome back. <laughs> I'm one of your long-forgotten co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Grumman. <laughs> And I am your uh, never forgotten, never forgotten co-host Emma Dilemma. But I didn't cause too many problems while you were gone. That's Emma. good. That's Hopefully. good. You kept it, kept the ship a sail. Yeah, I mean afloat at the very least. <laughs> we didn't go far. We didn't sail far, but we floated along. That's you good. know. I love it. Just. Really continue the metaphor as far as possible. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, do I have a question? Um, that is my question. Mm. Do you mm. do you know the pioneering female botanist who sweetened a nation and saved a valley? No. <laughs> Excellent. Then I will be telling you new information, and that is what I like to do. On this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Okay. So today we're going to be me. talking about Dr. Um, Janaki Amal. I hope I am not butchering <gasps> that. And most of my information has come from a Smithsonian article entitled The Pioneering Female Botanist Who Sweetened a Nation and Saved a Valley by wow. Guess Who? Layla. Layla McNeil. She's done it again. She's done it again. Yeah, Layla McNeil. She's the um, best. If you don't know who the famous Layla McNeil is, she's a great writer and editor-in-chief of the Lady Science magazine, which is a independent magazine on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science, technology, and medicine. She also has a monthly podcast called Lady SciPod. Um, mm-hmm. So go check her out because she's very qualified and actually knows more about yeah. this stuff than us. So listen to this episode, but then also go check that out. Yeah, she does a lot of the primary research. Like, she's more of a historian, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, she does the actual research and writes up a lot of the stories that we, like, talk about on the podcast. Yeah, we often are like, this is a really great article about this kind of Poorly Person known, I've never heard of before. Poorly known yeah. female scientist, and then of course, it's Layla McNeil. Yeah, I mean, not the scientist, yeah. the author is Layla McNeil. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I will link to that article and also to the um, lady, lady science website. Sweet. If you want to follow her more, okay. So, uh, I. Could not figure out how to pronounce this, so I apologize in advance. Edavalith Kakat Janaki Amal was born in 1897 in Thalassery, uh, which is an Indian state in Kerala, which is like 
Wow. The tropical Malabar coast, southern India, kind of by Sri Lanka. Okay. To give you kind of a sense. Like, very warm, very tropical, very coastal. Yeah, nice. And she was the... Sounds nice. (laughs) Yeah, you're more of a a heat-loving person than I am. That sounds nice, but also very steamy. the tropics. Yeah. Um, And she was the 10th of 19 children. So her father had had two two previous wives. And so this was all of the children together. There was a total of 19. 19? Yes. Wow. You know, I mean, the late 1900, or the late 1900s, man, people really had a lot of kids. Oh, yeah. That's intense. (sighs) I agree. I agree. Okay, so her father was a judge in the Indian state of Kerala, and he also maintained a garden at their home and wrote two books on the birds of Malabar. He had like a quite extensive library and had correspondence with lots of scholars and stuff like that. And so this environment that he kind of provided for his kids helped foster Janaki's love of the natural sciences. That's great. I love that. So, as she grew up, she saw her sisters grow up and enter into arranged marriages, but um, Janaki made a different choice for herself, instead going to Queen Queen Mary's College in Madras, which is now Chennai, um, India, to obtain her bachelor's degree, and then went on to get an honors degree in botany from Presidency College. There's not that much on her life that I could find. So I don't know if there was any, you know, internal or, like, family struggle with her choice to not follow an arranged marriage and instead kind of become a scholar. I don't know if that was an issue or maybe it was, like, her father was completely fine with it. I don't really know. Gotcha. Um, But at this time... Getting a degree like this was a really rare path for women, both inside India and internationally, as we've talked about in a lot of our different episodes. Right. And in 1913, when she was getting her degree, less than 1% of Indian women were literate and fewer than 1,000 were enrolled above 10th grade. So, like, she's really kind of standing out at this time and taking a really rare path. So, after receiving her bachelor's, Janaki taught at the Women's Christian College in Chennai for about three years, and then she was offered the opportunity to study in the United States for free through the Barber Scholarship. Oh. And so, the, the Barber Scholarship was established by the, uh, the University of Michigan in 1917 by Levy Barber uh, in order for Asian women to study in the United States. Wow, very specific, but I guess good to get more women, international women, to come to the United States. Yeah. No, so this gave her the opportunity, uh, and Janaki accepted and joined the botany department at the University of Michigan in 1924. Wow. And okay, there was there's going to be a couple things in here that I don't really have much substantiated evidence for. There might it might exist somewhere, but I did not find it in my <laughs> research. <laughs> okay, but apparently Janaki, so she was tall and had really long dark hair and always wore these like 
she dressed in uh, traditional Indian silks, but they were often like these really bright yellows. So she like really oh, stood nice. out. She was very like, she like had an air about her that was very confident and she was very tall and all of that stuff. That's great. Um, and so, but Janaki, when she came to the United States, she was detailed or detained in Ellis Island oh. until her immigration status cleared. So she was kind of trapped there as a lot of people coming from the East were. And apparently, though, because of her long hair and her, you know, very fine, like, nice silks and kind of confident appearance, she was mistaken for an Mm -hmm. Indian princess and was let through customs. So she didn't she wasn't (laughs) detained for long. And when asked if she was, in fact, a princess, she said, I did not deny it. (laughs) it's like great love it yeah why not with a bunch (laughs) of americans are just being dummies just but it benefits you i guess you just have to be like yeah i'm a princess sure (laughs) just let me go (laughs) and you know aren't we all princesses sometimes yeah right (sighs) anyway so i thought that was funny funny. but i don't it's not very substantiated right yeah it's a tale at least whatever I liked it. Let me have this. Yeah. <laughs> so while at the university. Oh, yeah. Have it. <laughs> thank you. Thank Sorry. you so much. I spaced for a second. <laughs> um, so while at the University of Michigan, she studied plant cytology, which is the study of the genetic composition and patterns of gene expression in plants. And she focused on breeding hybrids by crossing plants from either d- different species or from crossing plants from different genera. And so this is what her her focus was for her master's, which she received in 1925. And she went on to receive her doctorate in 1931. All from the University of Michigan? Yep. And this made her the... that's exciting. Yeah, this made her the first Indian woman to receive a botany degree in the United States. Wow, yeah. I mean, that was so early for anyone, for any women to receive PhDs. Yeah. 1925-31, yeah. Um, Then, after after she received her PhD, Janaki was offered um, a position by the Imperial Sugarcane Institute in Coimbatore to help develop a... uh, to develop sugarcane varieties that could be grown successfully in India. So I guess they were mostly importing sugarcane from other other countries because they weren't able to successfully grow like really sweet sugarcane in India. It just did, didn't oh, seem to do okay. very well. And so Janaki helped the institute identify native plant varieties in India that they could crossbreed with the sugarcane in order to produce uh, a sugarcane crop that could better, better handle India's tropical climate. Is sugarcane... I thought sugarcane was a tropical crop. It didn't seem to like... It didn't seem to do very well yeah. in India, for whatever reason. Right, right. But I guess I don't know where it would necessarily came from, sugarcane. Do you know? Or did it say anywhere? Let me look. Sugar cane. Sugar cane. Sugar cane. 
It's native to warm, temperate, tropical regions of India, Southeast Asia, and New Guinea. Um, I don't know. They were trying to breed like a really... I think maybe what the issue is, is that the really sweet varieties, which they wanted, couldn't be grown successfully. Right, right. (laughs) And so they were trying to make a more sweet version that they could grow in India. Yeah, it could have. I wonder if like people took it from there, changed it, you know, by breeding and then figured out how to grow in other places. It was a lot sweeter. And then, you know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Interesting. Um. But yeah, so she developed using hybrids a sugarcane variety that could grow well in India and produce like high sugar content. Yeah. Cool. She also during this time produced several other hybrids using between other grass species that had economic value. However, while there, because of her status as a single woman and her caste, which I'm going to be honest, I don't truly understand the caste system very well, so I'm not going to get into that. But apparently because of the castes that she was in and the fact that she was a single woman, she had considerable issues with her male peers um, that were seemed to be... um, Not irredeemable. It didn't seem like they were going to be able to find common ground over those issues. Her and her male peers. Like they're like they were not willing to yeah. like resolve, like get past yes. their own. Yeah. What's the word? <laughs> they had irreconcilable yeah, they- differences. That's what people like say when they're getting divorced. I don't want to say I hate this person. <laughs> well, that might be how she felt. So, because yeah. of the, I think partially because of this, um, she ended up going to England, and mm. um, in 1940, Janaki began work in Norfolk, England, at the John Eanes. Institute working closely with geneticist and future eugenicist ding 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 uh uh Cyril Dean Darlington oh eugenicist yeah so I mean I don't know how much of his views were like I don't I don't think at that time he was known as a eugenicist but, like, mm. he wrote a book called The Evolution of Man in Society, t- like, almost 30 years later. That was pretty controversial because he insisted that the intelligence of races was determined by inheritance. So, 30 years prior right. when he was working with her, I'm not sure how... Just your your James Watson type. Yeah. <laughs> Someone who understands genetics, but then uses it in entirely unscientific yes like scenarios basically which sucks yep so she worked with him and i they seemed to get along fine they worked together for five years they mostly focused on plants so you know maybe they just you know eugenics didn't come up so that's great (laughs) (laughs) right i mean 
Yeah. Sounds like sometimes people just go off the deep end. (laughs) So while they worked together, uh, they co-authored a book called Chromosome Atlas of Cultivated Plants, which was uh, a big text that recorded the chromosome number of 100,000 plants providing knowledge wow. of the evolutionary patterns and breeding of various botanical groups, which is still like a key text for plant scientists today. And because wow, very cool, like, I'm not going to get into this, but because the number of chromosomes, like, if you're breeding d- two different plants, you need to know the number of chromosomes, because that's gonna really change how that hybrid does. Right. Like if they have the same number of chromosomes or if they get double or or whatnot. Um, So that was all really important information if you are interested in making hybrids or breeding new varietals. Then in 1946, Janaki Amal was offered a paid position as a cytologist for the Royal Horticultural Society, um, becoming the first, the society's first salaried female staff member. So I guess they had other women there maybe that they never paid so that's pretty cool <laughs> but she, they paid her so great do they okay so yeah it's always like labor that women do is volunteer yep. labor yep you know <laughs> until someone's like hey they get paid to do this and this is work and i should be paid to do this too <laughs> <laughs> yeah Ugh. Yeah. Uh, okay, so while she was there as a cytologist, she studied the botanical use of this thing called colchicin, which is a medication that can double a plant's chromosomal number, resulting in larger and faster growing plants. I don't know how this thing does that. Whoa. You like put it on the uh, when the plant's first forming, and it somehow doubles its chromosome number. I'm not going to get into it because I don't understand it. But I also didn't look it I up. Guess? So. That's bonkers. Just double the chromosome number. It must have something to do with DNA replication yeah. process, right? Yeah. Um, Weird. Okay, so as a result of this work, she developed a magnolia shrub with these really bright white flowers and purple stamens. <gasps> nice. Which is My this favorites. hybrid um, that's known as the Magnolia Cobus Janaki Amal, because she developed wow. it. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. I can look that up later. I love magnolia trees. Uh, she also left England to return to India in 1950, but in honor of her, some later on, some Indian scientists also produced a rose hybrid that they named after her, the Janaki Amal rose. Wow. Yeah. So she's so got she two plants in. So she was in England for all of World War II, it sounds like. Um, or when? In the four, in 1940, she, yeah, well, yeah, pretty much all of World War II. Yeah. just. There, I also read something that was like she, because of her caste, wasn't allowed back in India for a while or was exiled, but I oh. couldn't substantiate that. Right. So I don't know oh. if, in addition, it, they might have just been talking about the fact that she didn't get along with any of her male colleagues because of her caste and the fact that she was unmarried. Mm-hmm. And so she felt like she had to leave to keep pursuing science. But I really don't know. Right. Um, yeah. But in 1950, she left England 
and returned to India at the special request of Prime Min- India's first prime minister, um, Nehru, after the 1947 okay. independence of India from British rule. So India got its oh. independence in 1947, and their first prime minister was Prime Minister Nehru, and he specifically requested that she come back. Because she was now like a world-renowned scientist? Yeah, or? so she was okay. had worked on making hybrid crops that were more viable. Right, and right, so during okay. this time, essentially India had suffered from a series of famines, including right. the Bengal famine yeah, of 1943 that killed millions of people. So sad. So really big issue. And so uh, when yeah. Nehru became prime minister, he was like, we need you to develop, to be in charge of some of this agriculture to help develop plants that grow really well and are sturdy and right. hardy for our. So now they need her talent. Now they need her talent. Yes. Um, so he made her the supervisor of the Central Botanical Laboratory in Lucknow, and Amal was frustrated, but, so she, like, got this power, but she was really frustrated with some of the initiatives that they, the government was using to boost India's food production. Part of that was, like, in the 40s, during a lot of these famines, they had created this Grow More Food campaign, which reclaimed okay. 200 or 25 million acres of land for food cultivation. But a lot of that land okay. was like tropical rainforest. And so it resulted in Ugh. like the deforestation of huge amounts of Indian land right. for cultivation. And she, so she was really opposed yeah. to that. And so there was a lot of destruction of like India's native plants. And so because yeah. of how the government was handling some of its campaigns to increase food production, which was an issue and they did need to solve that. But because of how they yeah. were going about it, she kind of changed her focus from plant cultivation to the preservation of India's indigenous plants. And that became kind of wow. her focus for the rest of her life. Though she was That's still in really charge of like this big government lab. So she was, was she looking at the preservation of plants from an agricultural perspective or from a conservation perspective? I think a little bit, like, of, a little did bit she of both. Cultivate them or just conserve land? A little of both. A little of both. Yeah. Okay. Um, so as the head of the Central Botanical Lab, she was in charge of the Botanical Survey of India, which was established to collect and survey India's flora. However, wow, this had been really cool. yeah, this had been established originally under British rule, and so it was primarily oh. British scientists that collected these spe- specimens and British institutions right. that housed these plants. Yeah. Right. And so she wanted these surveys to be conducted by Indian scientists and be housed in like Indian herbariums and natural history yeah. museums. Right. To like, keep like this take knowledge. Back ownership yeah. of their yeah. However, so she like advocated for this. But instead mm-hmm. the government appointed a European man as the director for <laughs> the survey. His name is like Jeez. Hermenegild Santapau. 
some oh. European man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I mean, hopefully he knew something about the botany of India. Yeah, I'm sure he was like a scientist in his own right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, what she says is, quote, I bring you news of a major defeat for botanical science in India. The government of India has appointed as the chief botanist of India a man with the Q tradition. So Q is like the big um, botanical gardens in oh, England. Okay. Uh, a man oh. with the Q tradition and I, the director of the Central Botanical Laboratory, must now take orders from him. Q has won and we have lost. So Aww. even though India was now independent, science specifically in India was still had this strong colonial feel. We're like Yeah, I think I think that the that Britain had still had quite a lot of power yeah. over the country for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely in, yeah, si- in like, sucks. science regards. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. So Janaki Amal also wrote, quote, The plants collected in India during the last 30 years have been chiefly by foreign botanists and often sponsored by institutions outside India. They are now found in various mm-hmm. gardens and herbaria in Europe so that modern research on the flora of India can be conducted m- more intensively outside India than within this country. Yeah. And still to this day, the largest collection of Indian plants is held at the Royal Botanical Gardens and the Na- uh, the National History Museum in London. So this is still wow. a problem. Wow. Additionally, so this goes back to kind of, are we talking about preserving agriculture, like diversity, or are we preserving like cons- more conservation? Well, as part mm-hmm. of preserving Indian plants Amal emphasized the importance of indigenous knowledge about them. So in 1955, she was the only woman to attend the symposium entitled, quote, Man's Role in Changing the Face of the Earth, which was held in Chicago. And Wow, the only woman. <laughs> yep. Well, it is man's role in changing <laughs> the face of the earth, so... So there she introduced the audience to India's subsistence economy, emphasizing how tri- uh, tribal cultures cultivate native plants and that women were traditionally oh. managers of property such as family right. crops. And so she argued that this mass production of cereals and crops, this like industrialization of agriculture, threatened these tra- traditions and these knowledge and these diversity of crops that were, yeah. you know, for agricultural purposes. But we were there you're losing that when you're doing these like monocrops and mass production. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she also bred um uh, created a bunch of hybrid a n- bunch of new varietals of eggplant. Um so she was definitely for like promoting diversity in crops. Yeah. And promoting these like more traditional farming practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So back in Chennai, she worked at the Madras University Center for the Advanced Studies in Botany. And she kind of worked there. She worked in a bunch of different places, so it was hard to keep up. But she was constantly doing science and working at botanical institutes throughout her life. Um, and later in life, she joined the Save Silent Valley campaign. So at this time, the government was planning to build this big hydroelectric plant in the state of Kerala. And while this would have provided power and jobs 
it would have also flooded eight kilometers of pristine evergreen <gasps> tropical forest as a consequence. What? Oh my gosh. Um, and so Amal, as an established voice in Indian science at the time, she brought, as she joined this movement, she brought credence to this environmental movement. Um, Good. She also spearheaded a chromosomal study of the Silent Valley plants to preserve their botanical knowledge and kind of show the importance of that area. Mm-hmm. And Amal and the Save Silent Valley movement was very successful, and the government not only abandoned the project, but also made the forest a national park in 1984. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So it's not just her, but she provided credence uh, and yeah. was a, a big advocate for the Save Silent Valley movement that got this done. That's, oh, that's great. Uh, unfortunately... Dr. Janaki Amal died nine months previous to this at the age of 87, so she didn't get to kind of see the conclusion to uh, her efforts. Well, hopefully she had some idea, though, of where, which way they would go, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, yeah. This is something I only saw in one source, but I thought you as a kitten caretaker (gasps) would appreciate it. So take this with a grain of salt. During her final years, one of her main interests was in the rearing and care of a large family of cats and kittens. Her training as a geneticist and a teacher led her to track down and discover subtle differences in the characteristics of the kittens under her care. I love that. You know, a little hobby (laughs) kitten genetics. That's cool. Yeah. Hey, uh, it's pretty fun to to figure out the genetics of their coat pattern. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so That's she was al- also elected to the Indian National Academy of Sciences in 1957. I don't know if she was one of. The- I would imagine she was one of the first women. I don't know if she was the first woman to be right, elected to the yeah. Indian National Academy of Sciences. She was also awarded a Padma Shri by the Indian government in 1977, which is the fourth highest civilian award granted. Wow. She was also friends with J JB wait, is it JS Haldane? Haldane. Whatever his JB. JB Haldane. Um and she called uh, him a naughty man. No, that, I don't know. That was his nickname. Her nickname for uh, him. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Of course. Uh I don't even want to know it that No, means. I don't think we want to get into it. <laughs> But all, all summed, Jana- Dr. Janaki Amal was a pioneer. She was a highly respected yeah. and sought-after scientist in her time when women were often dissuaded from higher education. Mm-hmm. While we don't know much about her personal life, it appears that she placed her work before herself from everything that I read and believed her work is what she would be remembered by, which is definitely the case. Yeah. She used her knowledge to improve India's agricultural independence, worked to decolonize science in India, and fought to preserve India's botanical diversity. And that is wow. Dr. Janaki Amal. That's great. What a great story. Yeah. Great thank lady. you, Layla Le- McNeil. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I it's so great. She finds these really amazing mm-hmm. women and does these really interesting deep dives on their on their lives. So, yeah. so that's yeah, my story. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. Oh, I need more people like her. I agree. I agree. Uh yeah, she was seemed like very not diverse, but like 
she saw she had multifaceted interests and it was like also interested in like keeping cultural stuff but also embraced science and like new high you know new hybrids but also traditional ways yeah it's just cool when people use their expertise to in science to make a difference in their community yeah you know i agree yeah for good, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can use it for bad too, but that's not it's not, <laughs> it's not as good. Um, no. Yeah, that's my story. Cool, that's awesome. I really like that. Work, 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 work. Okay, so this is our women who work section where we give a shout out to uh, badass ladies making history today. Woo-woo. And so my shout out this week goes to Justine Salvage, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Gothenburg who led the study I'm going to tell you about while she was in graduate school at the University of Rhode Island. Awesome. Um, And it was published in Nature Communications a couple weeks ago. And a double shout out to my dad who (laughs) sent me (laughs) this article, um, and said, oh, look at who the first author is. So, Papa um, Dr. Dietrich? Yeah. Uh, just Papa. Yeah, Papa Dr. Dietrich. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Yeah, he's my Papa. Yes. <laughs> Which I've never said before. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. So, in this study, you may have seen some headlines about it because it's all. Because I think all the headlines I saw about it was like, researchers find, you know, ways for life to exist on Mars, right? Because everyone's so excited about Mars, Mm -hmm. right? I love Mars. Um, But the study was actually done on marine sediments and microbial communities in marine sediments. And in the study, Justine and her colleagues discovered that Water radiolysis produces the main source of energy for microbial communities in very old, like millions years old marine sediments. Okay. Micro- so let me explain this a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what these words mean. Yeah. It yeah. sounds cool, so, but. Yes. It took me, it's actually like kind of not simple because this was a, a lot of hard work and and very creative but it's the basics of the science is not that complicated when i actually broke it down (laughs) but when i first read the headline i was just like god geez like (laughs) you know just vocabulary and science can get go out get out of hand i think oh yeah so Let's see. Water radiolysis is just the breakdown of water into hydrogen, which is an electron donor, and oxygen, an electron uh, acceptor. And it's specifically the breakdown of water after water is exposed to radiation. Okay. So exposed water to radiation, H2O breaks down to H and O, essentially, or H2 and O. Um. And this occurs naturally, but the major finding from the study is that there are minerals within these really, really old marine sediments that can catalyze this reaction. Oh, cool. So, 
Yeah, if you took like a sample of seawater, you could see that uh, radiolysis occurs just naturally. But when they looked at the samples of marine sediment, they saw that because of the minerals present in the marine sediment, sediment uh, radiolysis was occurring like 27 times more than it was just in free seawater huh. or like pure water that they tested. So, or at least in the marine sediments, there was 27 times more available H2, that electron donor, um, than in normal water or seawater. And so H2, like marine microbes, are basically able to use that electron donor for energy, essentially. Gotcha. That's wild. Yeah. Which challenges the idea that a lot of these marine microbes were using products of photosynthesis for energy. Mm -hmm. Um, And informs us a bit about how primitive life forms could have evolved, but also sheds light on whether uh, or not life can be supported on other planets that may have a similar ecosystem of minerals, microbes, and water. Yeah, okay. Essentially. So you need water and then certain minerals and you might be able to get life. Yeah, basically. Like, yeah, so instead of needing, you know, photosynthetic organisms Mm -hmm. to basically, uh, yeah, it's basically saying, like, life can survive or things can survive in these really, really specific environments where it's just sediment and water which is pretty crazy that's very cool yeah and yeah so specifically a lot of people were excited that this finding means that certain life forms may be present or could have been present at one time on mars when water was available um But the authors also say that these findings have implications for how nuclear waste is currently stored. So if you store nuclear waste in sediments like this, it may lead to higher rates of radiolysis and alter marine sediment ecosystems. Um, Hmm. So it has like implications for current nuclear waste storage as well as these kind of further potential implications for the existence of life on other planets. So really cool study all around. Very cool. Um, And there's some cool pictures in their, um, whatchamacallit, press release Uh that shows, um, that shows the authors like cutting into these huge marine core, uh, these core things to basically measure oxygen and rates of radiolysis and do all these neat experiments. So definitely check that out if you're interested. I'm trying to wrap my head around like, so it wouldn't change how fast like decay happens for radioactive waste, but that would change. Like if you put that in this type of sediment, then you would get a lot of bacterial growth potentially. Yeah, I think I think they didn't they just specifically in the press release didn't talk much about exactly what would happen and maybe they talked more about it in their paper okay. and the discussion or something. But I would guess that if there's just more radioactivity, then more 
radiolysis will occur, Mm -hmm. especially in these places with these specific minerals that might increase the rate of radiolysis. And so, yeah, potentially it would lead to like the buildup of, you know, or it would change like microbial ecosystems Mm -hmm. in the water potentially. Yeah. If some of them are much more receptive to like these, this H2 electron donor, you know, Mm -hmm. system versus other microbes that don't use that for energy. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Wild things people study, but I like it. I know. Right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That was great. What a, what a diverse group of topics today. Yeah, I know. Sometimes we're we like get we're it, we really match mm-hmm. things up. Today was not the day. No, but I like it. I like a little little. Yeah, it's like a little uh, poo poo platter of science. Yeah, you're we you're you hate that word <laughs> poo poo platter. I it's it's nasty. Okay, yeah. well, thank you so much for for tuning in. I am so happy to be back. Yeah, I'm happy to have you back. My island time. Because talking to myself, it's like when I do it by myself, I'm just talking nonstop. Yeah. And I like run out of breath and have to edit (laughs) out where I'm like, (gasps) like taking big gas of breath. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm very happy to be back. And it's nice to to chat with you. Yeah, of course. Um. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you like the episode, please rate, review, subscribe, share it with your people. Mm-hmm. Share it with your people. Um, thanks to Artichoke for our awesome theme music and Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art. And you can go stimulate, stimulate yourself. yourself. <laughs> We're never going to get in sync with this. <laughs> <laughs>